Well, if you have your copy of Scripture, go ahead and turn to Genesis, Genesis chapter 1. It's on page 1. If you're using the church Bible, that should be easy enough to find. And we are picking up in our second series in the book of Genesis. We began last week looking at um, the initial work of creation, and we looked at the God of creation and the purpose of creation. And this morning we are going to read through um, uh, Genesis 1, 1 through 26, and look more carefully at um, God's creation. Why has God given us Genesis 1? What lessons are there for us to learn? Why is it important that we receive this as both history and theology? And what impact will this have on our life? And so we're going to see a number of things that I think I hope will be helpful to you this morning. And as usual, I know you're going to find it helpful to have your own copy of Scripture open and reading along with us as we look together at Genesis chapter 1. And before we do look at God's Word, let's again pray and commit ourselves to Him for blessing His Word to our souls this morning. Our Father, again, we would not come to the preaching of Your Word unless we begged You to bless, that You would send Your Spirit to accompany the preaching of Your Word, that we would not know just the Word, but the power. We recognize, our God, that unless You give us understanding, unless You open the eyes of our hearts and that You loosen um, our, our tongues to sing your praises, that we would remain ignorant and unbelieving. And so, our Father, we pray that you would create faith in the souls of all your people this morning. We pray, Lord Jesus, that you would be at work and that we would see you and be drawn to you, and that we would understand more of your glories and that we would see more of the length and the breadth and the width and the height of the love of Christ that passes knowledge. Our Father, we pray that you would help us and that you would be worshipped in the process. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Genesis chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning, the first day. And God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse, and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse, and it was so. And God called the expanse heaven, and there was evening. There was morning the second day, and God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place, and let the dry land appear, and it was so. God called the dry land earth. The waters that were gathered together he called seas, and God saw that it was good. And God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed and fruit trees, bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind, on the earth, and it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their own kinds, and trees bearing fruit which is in their seed, each according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening, and there was morning the third day. And God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night. Let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years. Let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth. And it was so. God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night and the stars. And God set them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth, 
to rule over the day and over the night and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. There was evening and there was morning, the fourth day. And God said, let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures and let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens. So God created the great sea creatures and every living thing, creature that moves with which the waters swarm according to their kinds and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good and God blessed them, saying, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters of the sea and let birds multiply on the earth. And there was evening and there was morning, the fifth day. And God said, Let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds and the livestock according to their kinds and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, let us make man in our image, after our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female. He created them. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God endures forever. Well, when I was a very young Christian and needing work, the Lord provided for me a deacon who was going to make me work very hard in construction and pay me very little and never give me a raise. And it was the best thing that the Lord ever did for me. I learned how to work when I was building houses. And for a period of about a year and a half, I worked with my boss building a 4,300-square-foot cabin for the man that owns Anderson Flooring overlooking the mountains of North Carolina, and every day, rain or, or sun or snow, we would go up to that mountain, and we would work on that cabin. And I remember thinking, as we were building it, and we were doing everything from the floors to the wood that encompassed the totality of that to the tongue and groove roofing that I prayed every day I wouldn't fall off the top of the roof as we put that roof in, I wondered what this cabin was going to look like when it was done and what would happen in that cabin. And just across the way, there was another cabin going up. It was a friend, and they had hired another company. And I remember on one occasion, my boss, after we had worked all day, said, come here. And we walked over to the other cabin, and they had put it up so much quicker and I wondered why it was taking us so long, and I thought maybe that's why I'm not getting the raise that I so long for and need so I can marry my wife. And uh, we walked over there, and he pulled down a corner of the, the siding, and he showed me that there was no wood there where there should be wood. And then he took me around and showed me everywhere else this other group had cut corners in building this house, and yet we kept laboring and building this home until it was done, and now it is a spectacular cabin. And I'm sure as I think about the things that they've done in that cabin, they've had lavish parties and it served all kinds of wonderful purposes for their families and their friends. And, and building that house taught me something about the wisdom of God at work in the world. God was at work in my life. God was at work in the world, and everything he was doing was intentional, and everything that he was doing had purpose. And when we come back to the creation account, something that we see, and I think it's a helpful illustration, is that the creation account is something like watching God build a house. He built the worlds. He spoke the worlds into existence. He, he did each thing sequentially. He could have done it instantaneously. He didn't choose to do it instantaneously. Augustine 
For he mistakenly believed that Genesis 1 taught that God created instantaneously. God was purposefully doing each thing that he was doing. Each creative fiat, God was making a habitable world, a house, for his image bearer to dwell in, for man to dwell in. You can see how creation is moving and God is purposefully moving so that that house would be full and that man would live with him in fellowship in that house and that God's intention was to show his glory and his beauty and his magnificence and all the different contours of the world that he's created, the world that we live in, the the globe on which we walk, the heavens and the earth showing the glory and the beauty of God. And what we see in Genesis 1, and there's so much that we can see in this chapter, really are three main things that we learn about God. It's very interesting that when you read this chapter, it's not about us. Yes, God is creating a habitable habitable world for man to live in. He's going to create man and woman as image bearers, bearing the very image of God as those that he wants to live in fellowship with him. But God is not doing this for man. God is the actor. God is the one at work. Notice, with each creative day, Moses is telling us, that God is the great subject of this chapter. God said, let there be light. Verse 6, God said, let there be an expanse. Verse 7, God made the expanse. Verse 8, God called the expanse heaven. Verse 9, God said, let the waters be gathered together. Let the dry land appear. God called the water seas. God saw that it was good. God said, at every turn, we're being confronted with this great creator, God who has built this magnificent house by building all things, by bringing forth all things. And what we see, and we're going to see just three things this morning, is first, we're going to see that the Genesis 1 account is to teach us about the power of God in the creation of the world. It's to teach us about the wisdom of God in the creation of the world. And finally, about the goodness of God in the creation of the world. There's one thing, as we get to know our Bibles and we read through it, we see that whether it's in the Psalms or whether it's in the prophets or whether it's in the apostles, one of the big points about the creation account in Genesis 1 is that here is a God that you can trust. Here is a God with almighty power. Here's a God who brings things that were not as though they were, who creates out of nothing. And by the way, nothing means nothing. Nothing is not something that we call nothing. The Bible says that God, before there's any time and space, before there's any matter, matter is not eternal, contrary to what Anyone has ever told you matter had a beginning point. We saw that last week. The first thing God creates is time. He creates cum tempore with time. He creates time and space, and he creates with purpose, and he creates with power. He exerts his almighty power in the work of creation. And the thing that we find as we read through the scriptures is that this is a God that we can trust. This is a God who has all power, who is omnipotent, who we can go to in the the hardest times and the most difficult times. You know, I'll read this to you because I'd never thought about this before, and I read this, and I thought, wow, that's amazing because I've heard this verse my whole life, and I've never thought about it this way. Um, Sinclair Ferguson says, this is what this passage is meant to do. It's meant to bow you down in worship and amazement that this God is of such infinite power And that he's exercised his power in order that you would know so well that you would love him, trust him, worship him, sing to him, and adore him. Not only that, but that you would recognize no matter whatever situation you're in, however dark and desperate that situation may be, this God has the power to help you. Now here it is. 
This God has the power to help you. You remember one of the most famous Psalms, Psalm 121. I will lift up my eyes to the hills, says the psalmist. And he's looking toward the hills and they're not full of comfort, they're full of danger. Listen to this. Ferguson says they're full of danger because he's going to go over those hills on his pilgrimage to go to Jerusalem and he's wondering if he's going to make it there. And the psalmist says, I lift up my eyes to the hills. Where is my help going to come from? And then Ferguson says, listen to his answer. My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. Isn't that something to put courage into a faint-hearted pilgrim as he thinks about the dangers of crossing the mountains until he remembers that his God made the mountains and has power to sustain them? We have the same thing in all the scriptures. At every point, the believer is being reminded that the God who created the heavens and the earth is the God who made the mountains, is the God who made the valleys, is the God who is in control of all things, that there's not one square inch of creation. As Abraham Kuyper said, that the Lord Jesus Christ doesn't say, mine, too. And that means wherever you find yourself in life, wherever you find yourself in life today, right now, in your situations, in your relationships, and trials, there is a God who wants you to trust him and a God who has all power, who created all things. That is the first and most enormous point in this passage. You know, it's interesting that we talked last week about how Genesis 1 really has a theological focus and, and creation is helping us understand new creation. That's the point. That's why God gives it, is that he wants us to understand that redemption is, is illustrated by his work of creation, that he brings new life from death, just as he brought light out of darkness and, and order out of chaos, that he is redeeming his people. And, and this is magnificent. The work of the new creation happens when the Lord Jesus Christ steps out of the darkness of the tomb. And there's a moment, there's a moment when no eye sees him except the angels, they see him. And it's like light bursting out of darkness. It's like the creation itself. And the Lord Jesus is experiencing in himself what it is to realize what the new creation is because he is the first fruits of the new creation. He has come forth as the light out of darkness. He has conquered Satan's sin and death. He has undone what we did to this world that God created to display his power and his wisdom and his glory. And God wants us to understand that if he raises Jesus from the dead, he'll raise us up with him. And he makes us new creatures with him. And as we saw last week, he shines the light of the gospel into the darkness of our hearts. And Jesus said, I am the light of the world. And whoever walks in darkness and believes in me will have the light of life. And that the purpose of Genesis is to say that God has the power to do that in your soul. That the God who spoke everything into existence out of nothing has the power not only to help you in your difficult circumstances, but to help you in the deep recesses of the darkness of your hearts because he raised his son from the dead. And that is magnificent. That is, that is if we could say this, arguably the most important first step in our understanding of scripture. The Bible opens with those words. God said, let there be light, and there was light, so that we know that he has power, and that nothing is too hard for our God, and that this God cannot be stopped, and that this God can be trusted, and that this God will provide. You know, that's the great challenge of the Christian life, isn't it? I think we probably all know that if we're Christians. The great challenge of the Christian life is am I going to trust this God? 
do I really believe that this God is who he says he is? Do I really believe that this God can do what he says he can do? You know, we don't come to embrace Genesis 1 and the creation account by looking to God as creator because by nature, Paul says, we suppress the truth about God and unrighteousness. We embrace the account of God as creator in Genesis 1 because we come to know him as savior in Jesus Christ because we've experienced that power. You know, Paul, in Ephesians 1, after telling believers all that they have in Christ, all the forgiveness and redemption and adoption and everything else, he prays for them and he says, I pray that you may know the power, his mighty power that works in those who believe, even the power that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead. The same power that God used to bring light out of darkness at creation is the same power he used to raise his son from the dead, and you have that power given to you in the gospel for your souls, for your minds, for your lives. Not so that you somehow have more than other people and that you build up a a kingdom for yourself in some sort of false gospel, health, wealth, prosperity, God just wants good things for you all the time, but that you realize that the power of the gospel is always there for you, always working for you. And so we find a Genesis that God is teaching us about his power, creation, and that power for new creation. But we also see, secondly, that God is teaching us about his wisdom. You know, there is this really helpful parallel passage in uh, Proverbs 8 where uh, wisdom is being personified. It's probably the Lord Jesus. That's my take. A lot of old writers take that view. And, and he's speaking about being there at creation before the worlds were and, and when the he- before the heavens had brought down rain and, and, and the wisdom of God was brought forth and the worlds were created by that wisdom. And God is showing off the rooms of his house in creation when, when he's creating trees and plants seed-bearing herbs, when he's creating uh, birds that fly through the heavens, when he creates fish to fill the sea, he is creating a world of wonder to show forth his wisdom. He is showing us in all his intricacies his wisdom. I watched this documentary recently on Netflix. It's called Swarms. You should really watch this if you haven't. It's amazing. And they travel the world and they look at all these um, different creatures that swarm. And one of the ones that's most remarkable is a school of fish. Um, uh, and they, are, they, they move together in perfect, synchronized movement. And when, when a predator comes in, they divide and then they come back together. And it's, it's unbelievable. And you're watching this and you think, how in the world are they doing this? And then the person narrating the documentary says, how in the world are they doing this? They don't know. <laughs> And, and no theory of, of uh, the world coming into existence by chaos and all the, the lies that you're fed can explain that. And there's no explanation except that God's wisdom is manifested at every point in the world around us. God's wisdom is manifested in you. The fact that we are creatures that walk and talk. We have conversations. We make each other happy and sad. It's amazing. That's amazing. We don't even realize how amazing we are as creatures and how that displays God's wisdom. At every point in this world, God's wisdom is being shown. After shaping his house, he begins to fill his house. Isn't that remarkable? He takes the mass of unformed matter that he creates in Genesis 1-1, and then the spirit hovers over it. God is not his creation. By the way, that's 
that's the point there. Even though he comes to create, he is not his creation. We don't want to fall into pantheism. When the weatherman says Mother Earth is really angry, that's idolatry. They are, they are attributing to nature personification. That's pantheism. God the Father may be angry when those things happen. Mother Earth is an inanimate object. It is not a person. We don't want to fall into pantheism. God is not his creation. We are not God. No matter how much Deepak Chopra tries to convince you that he's God, he is not God. And God takes this unformed mass that is without form and void, chaos, and he brings order to it. He, he takes the, the raw materials that he creates out of nothing and shapes his house, and then he begins filling his house. And there's a wisdom, even in how God creates sequentially, there's a wisdom in how God creates sequentially spheres. Notice, the first day, there's the, spheres, there's the sphere of light and darkness. On day four, that will be the sun, moon, and the stars. They will become organizing bodies for that light. There is the second sphere. Notice the waters, and then the dry land, and then God will fill those waters with things that swim and move, and he'll fill the dry land with beasts, and then there is, there is, uh, the, there is the, the vegetation with which the earth is filled, and the land is, is, is being shaped and molded into a place that ultimately God's going to give to his image bearers, to Adam and Eve. He is, he is shaping his house for them to dwell in, and there is a, there is a beautiful wisdom here. God could have, I want to say this this morning, because there's all kinds of scientific arguments that people are going to get into, and there's all kinds of theories, and I would bore you if I went over all the theories, even in, in the church, about are these six ordinary days, how can there be rotation if there's no sun and moon on to the fourth day, and is it a framework, and is it, is it just a framework structure, is it just poetic, is it mythopoetic, is God just battling the Babylonians and telling them, well, I didn't really do it this way, but this is another way, and I'm the true God, and on and on and on, and people miss the principle. The principle is that God was perfectly wise in showing us what he's doing. In a very real sense, he doesn't talk about what he was doing out in other galaxies and the expanse reaches of the cosmos. He's telling us what's happening on Earth. He singles out this one planet on which we find ourselves with all the questions about who are we and why are we here and what am I to do with this and what's it all about? And he tells us, he tells us the starting point is I created this for man to dwell. It's a temple. It's a house. He created it as a place for man to dwell with him and to show forth his glory. And God is perfectly wise in all his ordering. Um, I just read the other day that Carl Sagan had said there were two things necessary for life. And it was distance from the sun and rotation, I think. And now uh, astrophysicists are saying there's 10,000 different variables that have to be perfectly in place. God was setting that. He, he was setting everything that we needed. He was, he was creating places for man to build and to colonize and to grow. And God's wisdom, God was building his house and filling it with things that gave him pleasure. He was making the world and placing man in it because he wanted fellowship with man. Now, one of the things that you may never have seen, and I think this is of supreme importance, and I had never seen this before. I just saw this the other day. God has given this account to Israel. 
in the wilderness after the Exodus. Now remember, Israel, when they go through the Red Sea, Moses says that the waters were divided and the dry land appeared. It's the same language as creation. Waters are separated, dry land appears, they walk through on the dry land. Israel is experiencing a typical new creation. You have the same thing with the flood account. Destroys the world that he had brought blessing out of with the waters, he covers them again, and then he brings a typical new creation. The dry land appears again. And God is at every point in the scriptures calling his people to be separate, to be separate in holiness, to be separate in worship. And there's this very fascinating thing in Genesis 1 where God in his infinite wisdom is teaching us that principle in the very first chapter of the Bible. Notice this. Notice this. God separated the heavens from the earth. God separated the light from the darkness. God separated the waters on the earth from the waters above the earth. I think that's just rain. I think that's the atmosphere. I don't think it's water on Mars. God God separated the waters above the heavens from the waters below the heavens. God separated every animal according to its kind. God separated animals from men. God was separating. Now, you could say, okay, you could say to me, that's interesting. Where are you going with this? I would first say to you, why? Why did God separate? Why at creation did God in his wisdom go through every act of division and separation that he did? And the answer, I think, is to teach us the principle that God, in the work of the new creation, is about separating his people. God separated Abraham out from his father, and then he separated Abraham from Lot. God separated Israel from the nations in the Old Covenant. He separated them from Egypt. He separated them from the pagan nations in Canaan. Now in the New Testament, we are separated in Jesus. We are transferred from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. God tells us constantly in the New Testament, and and it's so hard to miss this, God is everywhere calling his people out. Listen to this, the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 6, when he's talking to a church that is getting involved in idolatrous practices and they're, they're going up to pagan temples and they're intermingling and intermarrying and Paul says, don't you know you're not to be unyoked with unbelievers? You're not to be yoked with unbelievers. What fellowship has righteousness with lawlessness? What communion has light with darkness? What accord does Christ have with Belial? What part does a believer have with an unbeliever? What agreement does the temple of God have with idols? You are the temple of God. God has said, I will dwell in them. I will walk among them. I will be their God. They will be my people. Therefore, and he quotes Isaiah, come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord. Do not touch what is unclean and I will receive you. God is everywhere wanting his people to be a holy people. Not not in a fundamentalist separatist sense where we don't interact with unbelievers. That's a completely skewed understanding of scripture, but that we would be set apart to God. Just as God divided light from darkness, he has divided a people out of the world. He's redeemed them in Jesus. He has separated them unto himself. I wholeheartedly believe what I'm telling you is true. Genesis 1 is teaching us what is dearest to God's heart, and what he's going to do, and what he is doing in the work of redemption, and that is that he is a God who separates a people out to himself, and he draws them to himself, and he says, I will be your God, and I will make you my house, 
I will make you my dwelling place. And then one day, there's going to be a new heavens and a new earth. And God's going to dwell with those people who have trusted in Christ, who have been brought from death to life, from darkness to light. They're going to dwell with him in, in a new heavens and a new earth wherein righteousness dwells. That's where everything's moving. That's, that's the wisdom of God in creation. That was always God's plan. Jesus is the lamb who was slain from before the foundations of the world. It was always God's plan. That means that God in his wisdom wants you and I to come, wants you and me to come to Genesis 1, and he wants us to sit there and say, what of God's wisdom does he want to display in me as a part of his new creation? What is he seeking to do in me? How am I separate in holiness? How am I separate from a world that has rejected him and despised him and hated him and rejected everything about him and hates his word and hates Christ? How am I, who have been redeemed graciously by God through the death and the resurrection of Jesus, who stepped out of that tomb, who, who overcame death, who brought life and immortality to light in the gospel, how am I living as separate in this world? I think that's, I think that's why God did what he did in his wisdom in all of those separations in creation. Well, we know that God's power and his wisdom are manifested in showing forth those things. I think also, very interestingly, and this is something I used to think about a lot as a new Christian, that God uses all the things that you see in those creative days in the rest of Scripture. God will come into the world because the world didn't remain what it was. Man ruined the world. God's image was marred, and so God said, I will come. I will take a human nature to myself. I will enter into this fallen world, and I will use the things of creation. I will hang on a tree. That's remarkable, isn't it? God created trees so that he could hang on one and save you and me. Peter said he bore in his body our sin on the tree. God created trees to be nailed to one to save us. Jesus and all his teaching, and I think this is a very, I think this is accurate. He created sheep so that we would understand who he is as the good shepherd. He created stars so that, among many other reasons, the magi could see the star in the east that would lead them to the Lord Jesus. He said they would be for signs and for seasons. So it's always God's purpose. God doesn't look at the world and say, well, I'll use this and this and this to help my people. He created it for those purposes. He takes fish so that you understand how good a father is when his son asks him for a fish and why wouldn't he give him a fish? How much more will your heavenly father not give you the Holy Spirit? And, and, and he takes birds and teaches us that God cares about us more than the birds and he cares about the birds. If he cares about the birds, he cares about you and me. God in his wisdom created a world so that we would understand who he is and love him for it and know him better. He would use all those things. I think God's wisdom is so, in creation is so much deeper and wider than we have any idea. You know, we, we walk around outside so often like blind men. We, we live in God's creation and we don't see all the wisdom of God in the world around us. Um, 
I was reading a theologian I really respect a lot, and I was intrigued to see that he, he actually said that God divided the waters and kept the seas because he said when you, when you stand in front of an ocean, I was thinking about times on Hilton Head and looking out, there's a sense of majesty and there's a calmness that comes from the sense of majesty. And he says God is intimating in the seas that he is the majestic God and that finding refuge in him, there is a sense of calm that comes from understanding the majesty of God. That's, that's one of the many wise reasons God created the sea was to reflect something. Jonathan Edwards actually believed that God created everything in the world to in some way reflect some aspect of his glory or beauty or wisdom and to be an illustration of spiritual things. He has a whole book called Divine Images. It's amazing. It'll blow your mind. Somehow he explains how the silkworm some way spiritually benefits us. <laughs> um, and that's the point. God is showing us his power. God is showing his wisdom. And then finally, God is showing us his goodness. You know, in a fallen world, one of the great dangers is for us to look at the world around us as if it's evil. Even natural man does that. Even unbelievers do that. They look at the world around us. They think that somehow the world is evil. We are, we are prone to point away from our hearts. You know, fracking is bad, but my heart's okay. Fracking is wicked, but my black heart, great. We love to point away from ourselves and, and point to the world and things in the world and events and all of these things, and we love to say, by nature, there, there must be something inherently evil. And God says, no, it's good, it's good. I'm good. It's an overflow of his goodness when he creates and he pronounces good over each and every creative thing. God is saying he is seeing some of his overflowing goodness in the world. That's why we love sunsets. That's the only reason unbelievers look at sunsets and they don't know what to do with it. I have a theory. I have lots of friends that are artists. And, and most of them are depressed and angry. And some are just weird. They're good friends. I was heading down that path. Very just odd. Andy Warhol was weird. Let's face it. And my theory is that they are working with lots of beauty. They're working with lots of beauty, and they don't know who to thank for it. They're working with the goodness of God, and they don't know who to praise for that. And so it affects them spiritually in the negative. And we've experienced that. We were meant to see the goodness of God in this world. God never meant for man to, to view his creation as, as bad or restrictive. You know, he gives Adam all the trees of the garden. Satan comes in and he says, what did God say? You can't eat of any of the trees? God had said, you can eat of all the trees except this one. God is full of goodness. He's, this is why we can enjoy creation. This is why you can join me on my bandwagon of trying to be a foodie. We can enjoy good food. We can enjoy, God has, even in our fallen state, we can enjoy the things God has created because they are reflections of his goodness. They're reflections. He, he saw the light. It was good. He saw the dry land. It was good. He saw the fruit trees. It was good. At every point, it was good. It was good. It was good. Goodness is one of the most difficult things to explain. Philosophers for ages have sought to explain the idea of goodness. And really, at ground zero, the idea is blessing. The idea is blessing. 
the creation account is full of blessing. I mean, what God is there? Think about all the false gods of the nations. There is not one false god that in the false descriptions of him or her or it that man attributes to it comes anywhere as close to reflecting the blessing that our God brings into the world that he creates to show how good and how loving and how kind he is and how he longs to have fellowship with his creature. He doesn't need it. He didn't have to create. He chose to create a world that he blessed. You know, the rest of the scripture is how do we get that blessing back? Adam loses it, curse, judgment, death, pain, sorrow, misery, fallenness, difficulties, marriages, tensions, relationships stripped apart, nations at war with each other, How are we going to get that blessing back? Where's that blessing going to come from? And the rest of the Bible is God saying, here is how I'm going to bring that blessing back. And here's what he says. Psalm 8 is the great creation psalm that says that God's intention was to give man dominion over all that blessed world full of goodness and wisdom. And And his intention was that man would have perfect, righteous rule over that world. That was God's intention. And Adam forfeited that, and Adam failed in his purpose. And the writer of Hebrews says that it's still God's intention to give men righteous rule over his creation that is blessed by him. And the answer comes, the writer of Hebrews says, we do not yet see all things put under man, but we see Jesus, who was for a little while made lower than the angels, crowned with glory and honor that he, by the grace of God, might taste death for all his people. And that what we see is that he becomes the curse for us. Now, as you're reading the rest of the books Moses wrote, the Pentateuch, there's that great ironic blessing where (coughs) Israel is to get this blessing from Aaron, the high priest. And He is to say, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up the light of his countenance upon you and give you peace. But then we see the way things are and and we, we hear about the curse of the law and we know our own sinful hearts and we wonder, how do I get this blessing? And when Jesus hangs on the cross, in a very real sense, God the Father lifts up his hands over his son and he says, the Lord curse you and forsake you. The Lord hide his face from you. The Lord pour out all his wrath on you in anger. And may you be cursed. And the Apostle Paul says, Christ became a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. That the blessing of God given to Abraham by promise would be ours in Christ. You know, that's, that's where everything is moving in the Bible. God's goodness is going to be restored through the Lord Jesus. It's going to be restored through redeeming grace. You know, I'll close with this. Um, When I was maybe a month converted at 24, I remember now I knew the Lord Jesus, and I remember looking at the world around me and and seeing it with new eyes and thinking, "How how could I never have seen this? How could I... How could I have 
suppressed the truth of Scripture so much? How could I have rejected the truth of Scripture? How could I not see that everything that the Scripture says about the, the power and the wisdom and the goodness of God is all around me in the creation, in the world in which I live, of which I'm a part of, which I am one part of that work of creation? And, and I realized it's because I didn't know God and that the only way you get eyes to see these things spiritually is to know the Lord Jesus and to trust him. There's a chance some of you don't know the Lord Jesus, and so all of this may seem over your head, boring, let's get out, let's get on. God would plead with you to turn in repentance and faith to Jesus Christ, to say, Lord, you are the creator and the redeemer, and I have sinned against you, and I have not lived in fellowship with you, and I long to have my sins forgiven. You know, I think we need that as believers, too. I want to close with this last final word. What we needed at the beginning of our conversion to see with new eyes the wisdom and the power and the goodness of God we need every day of our lives. Because there's a million things that try to take our minds and hearts off of worshiping and adoring and singing praises to the creator and redeemer the way we did in the first days of our conversion. We need to be revived afresh. God has given us this word to help do that in our souls. Let him who has ears to hear, let him hear this morning what the Spirit says to the church. Let's pray. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we thank you that you have made this world and that you have made us, and we thank you that you have sent your Son into this world to redeem us, to hang on the tree, to bear our sins in his body on the tree, to become a curse for us that we might again know your blessing and your goodness and your wisdom and your power. Our Father, we pray that you would do in us what you alone can do in us by your Spirit, that you would do that for every man and woman and boy and girl present here. We pray that you would make us better worshipers and that you would give us grace to desire deeper fellowship and communion with you, the Creator who has made us for yourself and for your own glory. Father, we thank you for this word. We pray that you would make it work in us powerfully today. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.